0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And good morning. It's very good to have you with us this morning. And it's also very good to be able to gather with God's word open before us. And if you've closed your Bibles, it's Micah chapter 1 on page 930 of the Church Bibles. And you might also have received on the way in amongst your bundle of paperwork A handout for the sermon, which will help you, I think, in the next few moments to see where we're going. So you might want to grab that and have it at hand. But let me pray. Father, we do confess this morning that we need your help. We need your help to understand your word for us this morning. And also, we need your help to not just understand, but to leave this morning as changed people able to live differently this week. I ask that you would help me now as I preach, help all of us to pay attention, to listen, to accept, and to be changed. We pray this for your glory. Amen. We long for a better world. If we had enough time this morning and I went around and spoke to each one of you, then we'd hear... Lots of different ways in which we long for a better world. Some of you might talk about how we long that there would be no more terrorism and war. No more bombs, no more vehicle attacks, no more terrible headlines. There'll be others of us who talk about the great longing for injustice to be taken away from this world. Um, Racial injustice financial injustice, no more the rich getting richer at the expense of the poor who get poorer. There'll be others who talk about our need to have better leaders, leaders that we can trust both in terms of their competency and their character. Whatever your view when it comes to Brexit, we have seen, haven't we, these last few months, the limitations of human leaders to fix some of the big problems facing our world. We long for a leader who can fix this world. And perhaps more privately if we had time to speak personally each one of us we would hear stories about the week that's gone fears about the week to come and each one of us in some way able to say in personal terms why our world is hard the sleepless nights the anxiety about the future the sense of being out of our depth longing that our own personal world will be different we Long for a better world. That much is clear. What is less clear, I think, is how this current world can be so transformed that it is indeed eternally, truly better. Many people try to make this world better. You may have heard of Jack Holmes. Jack went to Syria back in 2014 to fight against ISIS because he was troubled by the threat of terror in this world. He was doing something about the threat. Sadly, the news broke this week that Jack was killed recently uh, in and around Raqqa, involved in the fighting against ISIS. And sadly, the threat of terror remains despite his efforts. We might think that we would change the way that we, we vote in this country. We might start a new campaign for more equality. We might join a yoga class to find more inner peace. Or we could do what so many people do in our world at the moment. We could pretend that the world is not broken, and somehow try to ignore the pain and suffering around us, hoping that somehow it will just get better on its own. We long for a better world. This morning we start a new series in the book of Micah, and between now and Christmas we will see that even though Micah spoke to God's people, to Israel, towards the end of the 8th century BC, many centuries ago, that uh, he spoke to a people very much like us today, a people longing for a better world. And we'll see these next few weeks that Micah's message is a glorious message. It is a message full of hope and wonder because the Lord... The God of the Bible has a plan to put this world to rights once and for all. It cannot stop. It will happen. It is a universal global plan and I hope that we are thrilled towards the end of this term to discover what the Lord's plan is for this broken world, to give us the world that we long for. It is a plan that will put all wars to end. It is a plan that will rule out injustice. It is a plan that will put our perfect king in his place on the throne of the nations. It is a wonderful, thrilling plan. But I want us to understand how our world today is like the world of Micah back then. And Micah 1 verse 1 helps to set the scene for this particular word of the Lord from Micah. Look at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moasheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Those three kings that Micah mentions are crucial for us to place his message from the Lord in terms of a historical context. You can read about those three kings uh, some other time in two kings from verse um, chapter 15 to chapter 20. But um, very simply, under King Jotham, that first king, it was a time of peace and prosperity, uh, the world wasn't perfect for Israel, but it, it was pretty good. There was money to be made, borders to be extended, and life was going fairly well. But then under Ahaz, the second king, everything changes. Uh, if you have your handout, you'll see on the back of it, there's a, there's a map which um, shows the world around the time of Micah. The, the gray area is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the right you'll see in that dotted area the great Assyrian Empire, which was to become the superpower of the day. And under Jotham, the Assyrian Empire was of no threat at all. Way up to the north, not even on the radar of the people of God. But during Ahaz, the Assyrian Empire grows and becomes an increasing threat. It moves down from the north towards the people of God. And by Hezekiah, the third king, well, the threat really is quite urgent in Hezekiah's sixth year, the northern capital, Samaria, is surrounded and falls in 722 BC to the Assyrian Empire, and the empire continues marching south to the gates of Jerusalem, 701 BC, and the people of God, their future hangs by a thread. And so Micah brings the word of God to the people of God, doing these three kings In other words, during a season of about 40 years when the people of God move from relative prosperity and peace right through to a time of absolute crisis when they think the world is about to end. He speaks to a people who will be longing for a better world to people who will be longing for a better ruler for um, a peace and prosperity for wars to be ended and micah has a message from the lord that will show them how the lord will put that kind of broken world to rights and so it is a message that we need to hear in our broken world as well this morning micah chapter 1 as he begins his message to the people of god it is a hard chapter I find it hard to preach on Micah chapter one. But I hope that we will understand this morning that Micah's goal in chapter one is to help us understand the problem with our world so that we can fly to the one true solution that the Lord offers. Think of a a doctor who has met with a patient and diagnosed the problem and now has to tell the bad news to the patient. The goal of passing on the bad news is so that the right treatment can be followed. It's a loving reason. Well, so too here the prophet Micah exposes the problem facing the world and it is hard news, but the goal is so that the people run to the one true cure that the Lord provides. Well, how can our world be put right? That is a question hanging over this morning and. Um, the scene before us in chapter one reads like a courtroom scene. And in keeping with the courtroom language, our first point on the handout there, the judge is revealed. Verse two describes the courtroom scene. Here, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. The church council, the PCC, have been reading a a book together over the last few months. The book is called A Faith in a Time of Crisis. I recommend it to you. It's a great book. Um, And in the book, uh, Christians are given some help to understand where our current culture is at and how to stand firm in the faith in the context of our culture. Very helpful book. And um, one of the authors, Vaughan Roberts, talks about how our culture has become very individualistic in recent years. He plays on the idea of Apple's iPhone and iPad and says that we've become an I world. Our world lives for itself. It places I in the center and um, it doesn't care what other people think. It lives based on our own preferences and priorities and we are individualistic in our thinking. Very helpful indeed. He, He mentions three particular advertising slogans that captures the mood. He mentions PlayStation. Be whatever you want to be. Burger King, have it your way. And uh, Nike, just do it. Welcome, Robert says, to the eye world. Of course, it is nothing new. We'll see that that same mindset alive today was alive and well in Micah's day. But for now, just notice how countercultural verse two is. All the peoples of the earth, that includes us sitting here today, We are not simply free agents able to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, with whom we want to do it, because there is a judge who will call everyone to account for how they have lived. Verse 2 is a huge claim, but as we read on, we can see why it's no empty threat. Verse 3, look The Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath them and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire. One summer growing up, my family went on holiday to the Swiss Alps and I remember one particular day we were up hiking high in the hills and we stopped for a picnic lunch. And as we looked out, the view was stunning. Before us was this tremendously deep valley just dropped away and away. And then behind the valley, as our eyes lifted there, towering above us was this majestic mountain range. And it was just stunning. And as we sat there having our lunch, the longer we sat there, the smaller we felt and the more majestic the mountains became. In fact, we spent hours just sitting there. It was so stunning. But here in Micah chapter one, verses three and four, When this judge appears in the earth, his footsteps squash the mighty mountains and destroys the mighty valleys as if they were but a candle in front of a fire. This judge, the Lord himself, has ultimate and universal power. No one can resist his summons to the day of judgment. Surely this is good news, When we hear about the evil at work in the world today, and we cannot ignore it, when we hear about the bombs and the sex trafficking and the way that those in power often abuse their power to harass others, we are thrilled, aren't we, that there is a judge who has the power and insight to act, and he will act. And we're seeing, aren't we, that part of what this world needs to be put right is that for there to be a judge who will step in and say, enough is enough. To the nations. You cannot have it your way. Evil cannot persist. I will step in and stop it. You can imagine the people of God, Israel herself. Cheering at this point, because if you know the history of Israel, then at many points in her experience, she had been oppressed by other nations around her. She had experienced great evil being done to her. And one of her longings was that the Lord would step in and judge the nations for how they treated the people of God. You can imagine Israel cheering. Now is the time. The judge is revealed. At last, God will step in and protect his people. But... Micah is not finished. The judge is revealed, but next, our second point. The verdict is announced. And see, if you would, the shock of verse five. All this because of Jacob's transgressions, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Jerusalem. God has summoned the nations to trial, but in fact, his initial focus is on his own people, the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And just as a husband and wife, when they enter into that special relationship of marriage, make special vows and commitments to one another. So the Lord and the people of Israel had entered into a special relationship. They had made vows to one another, but the people of God had broken her vows and commitments to the Lord. And just as a husband who might be unfaithful to his wife, so the people of God have been unfaithful to their Lord, they've been um, disloyal to him. And the word in verse five, transgressions, captures that sense of breaking the special relationship, failing to live as they should in that relationship. And verse seven gives us the details of what the people had done. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. If you were a farmer in the days of Micah and you wanted to have a bountiful crop, then you would go to the local temple and you would offer a sacrifice. You would bow down to various local gods that were personified by little statues, idols, verse seven. But you would also do something else. In Micah's day, you would also pay to have sex with a prostitute at the temple. Because part of pagan worship in that day around Israel the thought was that there was a link between having sex with a prostitute and your crops being bountiful and your livestock being productive. That was the prevailing wisdom of Micah's day. And it seems that the people of God had bought into the surrounding nations' understanding of how to have a prosperous life. It's not that they had suddenly sort of denied the Lord completely, but it's that they were hedging their bets. So they would worship the Lord a bit over here, but then there would be a bit of Baal worship over there and a bit of sex with prostitutes over there. They'd have a portfolio of gods they worshipped, and the thought was that if we cover enough options, then we're bound to have success in life. And in Micah's day, under King Jotham, well, it was working pretty well. There was money to be made, the crops were Bountiful. It sounds shocking to our modern ears, but don't miss the point. The people back then, the people of God, were simply copying the culture around them. You see, the culture says everyone knows that if you want a good harvest, you sleep with the prostitutes. That's just what you do, that's the done thing. And so to be a voice saying, don't live that way, would be a voice which says, you're not allowed to have a prosperous harvest. You, you can't enjoy a good crop this year. In fact, you're gonna be consigned to having no food this year. That's what it would sound like. It would sound hard-hearted and callous to say don't live like the nations. That is what was happening in verse seven amongst the people of God. And so the verdict is announced. God's people have been unfaithful to the Lord they have been if you like sleeping around with other gods indeed the problem is so widespread that in verse 6 the prophet can call Jerusalem itself the capital city of Israel he can say that the entire city is like a high place that is a place where prostitution took place you see that the corruption is so widespread the whole city is defiled by this approach to the Lord what does this verdict mean for us today? Well, on one hand, it does show us what the true God thinks of the idols of this world. The idols that the nations worship, they are worthless. They will be broken to pieces. I know that some today still literally bow down to idols, but more often than not, the kind of idolatry we see is more subtle The nations around us, as they think about what it will take for them to have prosperity and peace in this life, well, they don't bow down to an idol, but they worship the idol of money and career advancements and a property portfolio and being well-connected with other key relationships and having a good reputation or academic success, thinking that these things can somehow secure and guarantee peace in our lives in the future. And sadly, the church today is often nothing more than an echo chamber for the voice of the world. Whatever the world thinks will bring security, well, very quickly, the church adopts that same strategy for peace and security. If it's money, it becomes money. Career, it becomes career. We come on a Sunday and we talk about loving the Lord before all things, then on Monday morning, we give our best, our all to the job, thinking that is what we need for a secure life. And I must mention also the area of sex, just as in Micah's day, whatever the world says will fulfill us in the area of sex, the church quickly follows. And so often the church thinks that the world is a better chance of showing us the right place for sex than the one true God, the Lord himself. And so here is the verdict being announced from the one true judge. Finally, point three in the handout. The news is devastating. Imagine, if you would, a summer's day here in Fulwood. I mean, the sun's streaming through this morning. It's lovely, isn't it? Imagine maybe you're down at Forge Dam and there'll be people over there having some ice cream. Others there on a bench, maybe having a cup of tea. The, the children are out playing in the sunshine. And we know the world isn't perfect, but just at that point in time, it feels, it feels pretty good. Just everyone out having a great time in the sunshine. And then often in the distance, you hear a murmuring, an unsettling noise, and it gradually gets louder and louder, and you realize it's someone wailing and crying out. And then as you get closer, you realize the man is naked. And he's crying like a jackal. And everyone around him is unsettled and staring at him instead sort of walking away and trying to think, how can I possibly get as far away as possible from this distressed individual who's somehow out of kilter with the world at the moment? It would be shocking, wouldn't it, if that happens down at Forge Dam this afternoon? Well, it's the same shock for the people of God in Micah's day, verse 8. Remember, under King Jotham, the world is going well, money's being made, the harvests are plentiful. Here comes a man, verse 8, weeping and wailing, naked, howling like a jackal. Completely out of kilter with reality, it seems, because the world is going okay. But Micah has seen a vision of the future about 20 years ahead, and the news is devastating, for he knows that judgment is coming at the hands of the Assyrians. In verses 10 to 15, Micah goes through a whole list of towns and cities that's was scattered around near Jerusalem but getting ever closer to Jerusalem. He begins with the Philistine town of Gath and he says, verse 10, the news that's coming is gonna be so bad. Don't, don't tell Gath, don't tell our enemies how bad it will be for the people of God. It's so devastating, the news. And then he goes and lists all these towns getting ever closer to Jerusalem. Nothing can withstand the Assyrian army. I'm trying to think of it in terms of modern day um, geography. Think of um, Uh, Our nation today, and imagine going home today and discovering on the news that a mighty and terrible army had landed on the south coast of England, let's say Hastings, and um, the news sounds bad. The next morning, we wake up to the headlines, Hastings humbled. Imagine the conversations at work about what's going to happen next, What, what will this army do? And then the day after, London languishes, Warwick is at war, Birmingham burns, Derby destroyed, and then eventually... Sheffield shudders at this army advancing that cannot be stopped right to our gates. That's the shock of these towns and cities being mentioned by Micah. And sure enough, first nine comes to pass. This threat comes right to the gates of Jerusalem herself as the Assyrian army, 701, knocks on the door. The city of Lachish in verse 13 gets a special uh, mention in the devastation. Um, as far as we know, that she was a particularly well fortified city. It was a, a chariot town, one of the key parts of Israel's defensive um, system. And um, the sin that is talked about in verse 13, I think, is that reliance on chariots to defend the people rather than on the power of the Lord. But even this great chariot town falls at the hands of the Assyrian army. Um, there's a, I don't know if there's a, some pictures here on the screen. I don't know if that's possible to bring up. I haven't given the, uh, the warning here. But here's a picture of uh, modern-day Lachish. This is the same site as mentioned in verse 13. You can see a mound of earth. This mound is the mound of earth the Assyrian army built in order to climb over the top of the city walls of Lachish—you can't see the walls anymore. They were knocked down completely by the Assyrians. Archaeologists have found the rubble beneath the surface, but the mound you can see is the Assyrians' army's handiwork as they destroyed the city. Uh, if you flick on to the next slide, um, if you have a, a, an hour or two spare in London in the next couple of weeks and you're just walking around, then I commend to you the British Museum because if you go there, you'll see this picture. It's a picture um, done by some Assyrian artists around um, 800 BC following the defeat of Lakech. This is uh, the prisoners that they've uh, uh, captured. They're being brought back to uh, the Assyrian empire, um, destroyed and humiliated. The point is, these events of verse 13, all the events of Micah 1, they all happened in history. And Micah, 20 years ahead, saw what was coming Predicted it correctly, and it came to pass. The news is devastating. And so, when he says in verse 16, shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight, make yourselves as bold as a vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Well, he was right. For in about 20 years, their children did indeed go into exile. The news is devastating. And so Micah's response is the right response as he weeps and mourns over the certain judgment of God. Well, as we close, how should we apply this to ourselves if we don't face an invading Assyrian army from the north? Well, remember the nations have been gathered, verse two, to watch the Lord's judgment on the people of God. And so the, the, the picture of what happens to the people of God in Micah 1 in their exile is a, is a picture of what will happen to all nations on that final judgment when Christ returns and judge, judges every nation on the face of the earth And although we are not Micah with this particular word from from the Lord, we are called to be like Micah, to stand up in every generation and to explain to God's world what will happen when the judge is revealed. And so we need to be like Micah, willing to stand up to the nations, to warn them that the Lord will put this world to rights, but it will come through judgment. And we should do it weeping and with tears. When we look over our city and our neighborhood, our friends at the gym, the people at the school gates, I wonder as we look at them, we don't see perfection, but we see a life perhaps that's going okay. I wonder if we look at them and think, actually their greatest need is the coming judgment when Christ returns. If we believe this future, it should lead us to tears and to weeping and wailing in this life. And it should lead us to speak out I think of the Lord Himself uh, in Luke 19, the references there on the handouts. As He approached Jerusalem, a city hardened against Him, He wept over the city, knowing that because of their sin, judgment was coming, and they had pushed the only hope away, uh, the only hope of salvation from their sins. That's the right response to the coming judgment. I think also that, that Michael 1 helps us to understand the seriousness of our own sin. Micah, the prophet himself, later on in the book, will count himself among the sinful within Jerusalem. It's not a kind of us and them with the prophet. He knows that he himself has been an idolater and someone who's unfaithful. There's no moral high ground here with Micah. He is devastated by his own sin throughout the book. And he knows that he too faces the judgment of God. And so Micah 1 helps us to own up to what our hearts are really like, our divided loyalty, the speed with which we adopt the practices of the nations around us. And it helps us to understand the Lord's reaction to our hearts. We long for a better world, but Micah 1 shows us that this can only happen through God's judgments, not just for the sins out there and the nations around us, but for the sins found in here, in my heart and in each one of our hearts. And so these are hard words, but Micah 1 leaves us longing for a rescue that we cannot achieve ourselves, which comes from outside our ability. And if you keep coming back over the coming weeks, we will read about just such a rescue. A baby will be born in Bethlehem, a king who will rule the nations. There will be a way found for the sins of the people to be born by another, and there'll be rescue through the judgment of God. But unless we believe we need rescue, we will never run to the one who can rescue us. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that these words are hard to hear this morning as we see uh, the state of our world, but also the state of our hearts. And although we do long for you to put the world to rights. When we realize that it involves judgment, it is a scary thought. And so please help us to be clear thinking in our hearts and minds that we would teach judgment, but also understand that there is a rescue for any who would turn and trust in the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.